Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Lois Letchford. Originally from Australia and currently living in the U.S., Lois is the mother of three young men, two of whom are on the autism spectrum. She has also personally struggled with dyslexia her entire life. However, she now uses it to her advantage as a literary spokesperson for learners who have fallen behind in the traditional classroom. In her book, Reversed, a Memoir, Lois tells the story of her son's journey of learning to read. Through coaching and workshops at international conferences, TV appearances, and radio stations, she teaches educators and parents how to create flexible learning environments using comprehensive and innovative teaching methods. In this conversation, we discuss what dyslexia is and how it affects Lois's life, her son's autism and their interests, how one teacher's negative comment pushed her to become a reading specialist, some of the biggest mistakes educators make when teaching kids how to read, the deficit theory, her teaching philosophy called MAPS, thinking outside of the box to teach autistic children how to read, and tips to identify trauma in the learning environment. In this episode, discover what's possible when you redesign the approach. To learn more about Lois, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you Lois Letchford. Hi, Lois. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thanks for joining us today. Hello, Rachel. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Could you please briefly introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Lois Letchford. I'm the author of a book, Reversed Memoir. I consider myself a literacy problem solver. And I was thrown into a journey, an unexpected journey that has incredible outcomes. All right. And we'll get into all of the details of your journey coming up. But first, I want to talk about your dyslexia. Now, this is an autism podcast, but you know, there have been studies that show comorbidity or co-occurrence of autism and dyslexia. And I just want to give a kind of brief overview for our listeners who might not be familiar with what dyslexia is. So could you explain it? Dyslexia is a learning disability that varies in severity from person to person. Some are really severe And my dyslexia only came to light at the age of 39. I went to school in the 1960s and I learned to read words. And that got me through school because as long as you can read words, people didn't care that you could or couldn't comprehend. I remember reading for me being like wading through chest deep mud. 
a chore, a pain. And yet I could, because I could read the words, no one thought anything of it. Mm. I survived school because of that and it was only really in high school that content becomes important and that made a huge difference to my reading and understanding and my success. But always through all of my education, I just survived and everyone just says, well, you know, she's not very smart is the first thing that comes across and you don't work hard enough is the second, if only, if only. And they are really indications that something else is going on but no one looks beyond, well, you're doing all right. Mm -hmm. And you're from Australia. So in the 1960s, were people talking about dyslexia in Australia? No, not at all. Okay. Not at all, but fascinating. You know, it would have been in the 1970s, there was a radio news item where it said some people struggle with learning to read but are really smart. I remember listening to that and my ears went, maybe that's me. Not even maybe that's me, but it, it, I'm telling you this now, what, 50 years later, and I still remember that moment. Ah, there is something going on that clicked with me, but no one looked any further. The story gets worse than that. How did you finally learn about your diagnosis? Well, I marry. I marry very well. I married a man who was the top of the academic field. So that was huge bonus. And then we had three sons. The first son learns to read with ease. He speaks at the speed of light and thinks at the same rate. He drives me nuts because he's so quick at everything. And the second one belongs to another species. And he had ear infections from 8 to 18 months, and I didn't realise the implications from that. But it's only when he goes to school, my second boy, Nicholas, goes to school and he fails first grade that we're thrown into this world that you're not fitting normal. And as I worked with him, I then started to look at dyslexia and learning disabilities. And on one little book I picked up, it had... 20 signs and symptoms of dyslexia, I had 18 of them. And it's the first time I'm saying, ah, this is why I struggle. Hmm. What was that like for you to find that out about yourself at that point? It didn't make much difference because my son was on the extreme of the, this continuum. He couldn't do anything. So he was in a much worse position and that's where my energies in. My energies went to my son. You know, where I was was irrelevant. It takes a long time for me to really realise the implications and it's only when I came to write the book that I realised, you know, the dyslexia does impact my life enormously, you know, that I can't read, write and read a sentence accurately. Maybe a sentence I can do. No, tell a lie. No, I can't. <laughs> I can't see if I've got two words the same, if I've incidentally put it and it or, or two and two together, and Google has to underline it for me for me to say, ah, oh, that's it. And I can't tell if I leave words out. And it's disastrous for writing. So everything I write goes through 
uh, a text computer reading it to me, then I can pick up, ah, this isn't right. I've left a word out. This doesn't make sense. Oh, I've got to complete the sentence. It's an incomplete sentence. That's regular. <laughs> incomplete thought. So, and so you have the problem of when you learn, you don't get enough practice. And then the lack of practice leads to lack of writing. And it's a cycle that continues, that impacts your life. Right. And other than reading and writing, how else does dyslexia affect your everyday life? Left and right is a problem. I'll say left and mean right. I can't tell left and right. The Google Maps in the car is disastrous for me. I need multiple layers of things. I can't remember where I put things. I lose things, all of that. I can't see things. It's like my I've got a part of my brain doesn't work properly at all. So over the years, have you found ways to put in systems or... Compensate. You know, find the right supports that you need. No. Okay. And I, I was with my sister one day and we were talking and something happened and I just said, well, I'm stupid. And my sister said to me, Lois, why do you say that? And I said, that's the way you think. That's why I get it wrong. And, it, you know, still it moves me to tears because it impacts you are not very good at doing things. And that's the message I've had all my life. Mm -hmm. It's hard work. Well, what are some of your strengths related to dyslexia? Creativity. Being able to solve problems, particularly in related to reading, to identify when a child can't do something, to look beyond the decoding ability and say, what else is going on underneath that stops this child from reading and writing effectively? That's my biggest strength. Mm -hmm. You know, I hear that a lot about people who are neurodiverse, like autistic, people with ADHD, dyslexia falls also under that umbrella. This kind of out-of-the-box thinking to problem solve. Oh, yes, yes. That comes into my story of teaching. That's exactly what I did. Out of the box, use a box, teach from a box. People, a lot of teachers don't see why it's important because the average child gets it. They forget about the range of disabilities and how that will impact the teaching impacts every child in their class. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Before we start talking about your teaching method, I want to talk a little bit about your family. So you mentioned two of your sons, but you have three, right? I have three sons, yes. And two of them are autistic. Two are autistic, yes. On the autistic spectrum anyway, yes. Okay. So is that Nicholas and then the third son, Isaac? The youngest one, Isaac, yes. Okay. So how old are they now and what are their interests? Nicholas is now 33 and he's really the main character in my book. And I could work with him and he really failed first grade dramatically, but he worked with me. And then Isaac is 29 and I haven't been able to work with him as effectively. And he is a much greater challenge with a more significant 
social interaction challenge and I I can't work with him. Hmm. I struggle to work with him. And the problem in school, it was obvious he had social interaction problems and what happened? We blame. He just doesn't do. He has got to. Well, that's why he, and it's always he, he, he. And the moment you're pointing the finger at a child, there should be alarm bells going off and saying, something's going wrong here because he can't do it and we need to provide more intervention. And no one did that Mm -hmm. because now it comes, he cannot see how his interactions impact all of his social circle. So the solution, get more support, get social interactions going because I did none of it and no one helped me and I didn't realise the depth of his problems. Did they grow up in Australia also or were you already living in the US at that time? We have had an international life. So they grew up in Australia. We left Australia when Nicholas was 11 and Isaac was 7 and we came to the US. So you know, it's been a, a both places, but Isaac really grew up in the US. Mm, okay. It's tough. Yeah. So in your book, you tell the story of Nicholas's grade school teacher who made a comment that would later lead you on your path to becoming a reading specialist. Could you share that story and why that inspired you? inspired or put a fire in my belly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Nicholas failed first grade and and failed. I mean, he wet his pants, he bit his fingernails and he stared into space every day throughout year one. When you get tested at the end of the year, they say he can read 10 words, he's got no strength and he's got a low IQ. That sort of diagnosis for any child is disastrous. And the chances of getting out are really slim to non-existent. As I said, my husband's a professor and he had study leave the following year. So we all went to England for six months. And I thought, I'm going to work with Nicholas at home. So I did. And I took a series of books called Success for All and we failed. I failed again. I'm no better than his first grade teacher. And my mother-in-law was with me at the time and she said to me, Lois, put away what's not working and make learning fun. What can I do? He can see patterns and he can rhyme words. What can I do with that? Well, anything's better than nothing. Write a poem for him. And I wrote one poem and that was transformative because I'm not expecting him to do anything. He relaxed. He laughed. We found the rhyming words. We had fun that day. We did an illustration of the poem, so it's all meaningful to him. And I just started to write and write and write and write. And the story's quite complex. And during this whole process, I learned that Nicholas had a brain because he started to ask questions that were beyond a child with a low IQ. And also we're in this foreign country, so we're seeing a lot of things and we're experiencing things. And Nicholas is excited with every piece of learning we did. We return to Australia and I meet the diagnostician who had done the testing of Nicholas. And I said, you know, we've had such a fantastic time. 
and Nicholas has asked questions I could not answer. And she stood there, put her hands on her hips and said, well, he's the worst child I've seen in 20 years of teaching. Hmm. And when someone says something like that to me, I can't respond. I'm really slow. So I just went home and I thought about it and I went to a neighbour and told her and eventually I went back to school and I said, you can call him whatever you like, but then don't expect him to learn like everyone else. That was critical moment for me to then rethink, reevaluate, and this child can learn. Don't put him in a box. Let's do whatever we can to help him get to where he needs to be. Because reading and learning in the UK went from this horrendous experience like it had in first grade to this is so exciting. Nicholas can do that. And then he's making minuscule steps with decoding, but with his thinking, he's got out of the box, unbelievable. So I have this enormous gap in my learning about Nicholas and, and teaching and learning, and this label really hammered me to say, he can learn, we're going to do this. Yeah. The next piece is that the reading teacher then sent Nicholas home with his 10 sight words. Last year she'd been giving him 20. Thankfully we're down to 10, and he knew eight of the 10 words. He didn't know now and he didn't know saw. And now I saw that he didn't know it. So for now I said, Nicholas gets out of the car. I said, Nicholas, get out of the car now. And he did. Shut the door now. And I just kept using it in my oral language with him doing something doing something and then we started to blow up balloons blow up the balloon not now not now now and he started to giggle and mm-hmm. then I'd say stop blowing up and he wouldn't and that's the he's seeing the joke of now and that was fine and then I, I gave it a break and I came to dinner time and I said Nicholas set the table now and he stood there and he said you said now <laughs> You know, he's recognising in oral language. That's fine. So we got now to Then Saul came up and he read the sentences the teacher had given him. The sentence was, I saw a cat climb up a tree. And he read, I saw a cat. No. I was a cat. No. I add a cat and I asked a cat. No, he said. And he just handed me. It took me a while to work out what was going on here. But the reality is... Children on the autism spectrum see the world concretely. And in fact, there's a YouTube video of Nicholas saying, I thought every word would only have one meaning because that's logical. Hmm. Why do we have words that have got multiple meaning? That's (laughs) not logical. That's crazy. (laughs) And in fact, what the teacher's done is the teacher has provided only the abstract meaning of the word saw. She has failed to show him how the word works. Now, here's the next problem. When something goes wrong with the child not learning, the first thing we do, the first thing that we tend to do, is just like they did with my son Isaac. We blame the child. We say, well, look, look at his IQ. He's not very smart. The parents haven't done this and this and this at home. That's why the child hasn't learned. Look at their home background. Look at their ethnicity. Look at, look at, look at. And what do we fail to do? 
we fail to examine the teaching and how we have taught that word. And if you look at the word saw, it isn't a really tough word in many ways because it's one that can be reversed, sort of was. But the word saw has the the object of a saw. It's got meaning, the verb saw meaning to cut. And saw meaning to look is a past tense, an irregular past tense of the word to see. And then you have to go back to the child's oral language. Do they have the word saw in their oral language or do they say, I seed it or we we looked at it or what is in their oral language? Are we actually teaching them a new word rather than building on what they already know? It's not as simple as the child just has to learn this word. And when you look at what Nicholas said, he said, I saw a cat and he said no because I don't cut a cat in half. That's his thinking. I was a cat. Well, no, I've never been a cat and the other two don't make any sense. And I taught Nicholas the word saw by by looking at the photo albums we've had from what we had in Oxford and said, what did we see there? And you give the concrete meaning. Did we take a saw with us? when we went to Windsor Castle and cut a brick out? No, of course we didn't. Did we take a saw to the British Museum and try and cut Captain Cook's book? (laughs) No, of course we didn't. Did we saw a Gutenberg Bible? No, no. He's been there. He's physically experienced those places. He knows exactly what happened. So you're using a child's experience to give them comprehension of the written language. We never had a problem with saw again. <laughs> and that experience has stuck with me. And so when children come to me and struggle with language, it's one of the first things I do, not one of the first, but over time I teach them the word saw by going into the computer and saying type in the word saw and go to images, see what comes up, get the image, then look at the second meaning, meaning to cut, get a picture again of a saw because we don't tend to use that word as a saw a log anymore. Do you use the word I saw a log? It meaning to cut? Well, I mean, how else would you say it if not I saw a log? Well sometimes you chop it, don't you? Oh. You use an axe to chop it. I don't own a saw or an axe, so that's a bit out of my world. Exactly. <laughs> and you're not uncommon because children in the city are no longer chopping down trees Uh or using chainsaws. Maybe they saw a limb off a tree if you have trees in your back. So your experience of using the word saw as a verb is limited and it's an old meaning. You know, and as we said, we grew up in Australia in the 1960s, sawing trees down was quite common or sawing limbs down or, you know, using a chainsaw to saw them in half. It's not a common experience for today's children. And we have to acknowledge how language changes, yet we still keep those old meanings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I just love how you related to Nicholas's world by showing him pictures of places that he's actually been to and that he can visualize the examples that you're giving. Critical, critical. And then the third part of that, 
to teach the children the word saw as a past tense of the word to see. I walk with my students. I take a pen and paper with me and I walk with them. And we start in the library and we stand and watch the librarian doing something. And then we talk to them. And then I walk away and shut the door and I say, what did we do? And I'm writing sentences about it. So my students are always reading and writing and making sense and saying, what did we do? We saw the librarian reading to the children. We saw the librarian. What does it mean? It means we looked at her. Does it mean now or in the past? In the past. And when you experience something, it's going into your memory. Because a lot of what I'm doing is about memory and accessing memory. And experience is one of the best ways to access memory. And there's never a question again about how do we find this meaning? Because then we've got to work out, we've read the sentence, what are we doing? Are we cutting something or are we looking or are we using a saw? Now, of course we're not. It means to look. Right. So that little snippet impacted the way I teach forever. (laughs) Right. And I imagine you've done some consulting with other teachers also and provided training. Yes. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you see teachers make when teaching students how to read? We make assumptions about student knowledge. Mm. That's the biggest. Like the word saw because we are efficient readers and most teachers learn to read and write efficiently, you know. I told you that. We've been through that without recognising the child's lack of understanding. That's the biggest mistake. And the second biggest mistake is the idea that all we have to do is teach children to decode without acknowledging the complexity that language is. And as you know, you and I are talking, children on the autism spectrum see the world a little bit differently. And we have to teach them rather than just blame them. Right. This kind of ties into the idea of the deficit theory. Could you explain what that is? The deficit theory is just what they did to Nicholas. When a child fails to learn to read, the first thing they do is blame the child, as opposed to saying, what else do I as a teacher have to do? And there's an academic paper that was written by Professor Brian Camborn in 1990, and it said when children fail to learn to read, we blame the child. And why do children fail to gain literacy? Because the first thing is we give inadequate demonstrations of words and meaning, and that I saw a cat is an inadequate demonstration. The second is that we give adequate demonstrations but fail, but the children fail to engage with them. Nicholas's cat climbing up a tree, he failed. It was an adequate demonstration. If you've seen and watched cats climbing up a tree, it's an inadequate demonstration if he has not engaged with them. Mm-hmm. And there's also stress on the label of the child, right? Like putting so much emphasis on their diagnosis, which is helpful in ways of finding solutions if, you know, there are proven methods to help kids with dyslexia, for example. But I do see the harm in relating to a child by their diagnosis and how that will affect their self-esteem growing up. I have been known to say the worst thing we do is to label children Hmm. because it's the first thing that comes up. Well, you know, they are dyslexic. 
they are autistic as opposed to what else do I have to do to teach them to read. And I suppose the point of your podcast and the point of me talking is irrespective of the label, we know we can teach children to read and write effectively. Let's do it. Sorry, not interested in the label. Okay, he might be that. And I'll I'll take issue. We think we know, you know, there's proven methods for dyslexia. I taught children who'd spent four years in this proven system and came out non-reading. Why? Because they said, well, sometimes it takes them a little bit longer and if you stick with us, we'll get there in the end. And guess what happened? Four years later, the child's non-reading. We've lost four years of his life of everyday failing. And what have we got? A child who says, I can't learn to read. I get disappointed with our community that we so quickly jump to programs. And that's what we would have done with my son, Nicholas. And when they fail, again, we're back to the label. Well, he doesn't. Rather than saying, what else do we have to do? Right. And trusting teachers rather than relying on programs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, eventually maybe some types of methods or approaches could be turned into programs later on if it starts with one teacher. Like I want to talk about your philosophy, for example. <laughs> so you call it MAPS. Could you explain what that stands for and what's included in that process? MAPS. It's an acronym. It's it's multiple meaning because Nicholas learned to love learning through the world of mapping and the change and looking at the changing map of the world. And what I didn't know about Nicholas when he was seven years old was that he has a spatial awareness that places him on the 99th percentile, hmm. you know, in the extreme. Uh, maps, mindset, M-A-P-S, mindset, active learning, play student success. That's what MAP stands for. Why is mindset so important? Because how we see children right at the beginning impacts how we teach them. Are we willing to say, what else do I have to do to help this child read? Are we looking for alternatives or are we just saying, well, they're just, you know, they're just a bit thick. Mm. They just can't do it, which is what happens to most of us. And we've provided the program and they didn't succeed. Well, you know, we've done what we can. We've spent our money. Every day a child comes to me, I want to say, A, I can teach you to read, and B, we can love it in the process. And if you didn't get it yesterday, what did I do wrong? What else do I have to do to teach this child to read? That's my mindset. Second, A, active learning. I read a paper once about the difference between skilled readers and unskilled readers. And it said these are the list of characteristics of skilled readers. And one of the first ones is they are active learners. They read something and a picture pops into their mind and they engage with the the picture and the text and live in another world. What do unskilled readers do? They read words, they do as they are told. So I always want to create active learners. So when a child reads a sentence, what do they have to do? What what does the reader have to do to make sense of that? 
and recall it. Once you make sense of it, and then it's going into your memory to be recalled because a lot of it is about recall. And how do I do that? Act things out, interact with our learning, create images, create things, not just read and decode, but read, code, and connect, do it. Make mistakes. Making mistakes is part of being an active learner. That didn't make sense, did it? Then what do I have to do? Ah, and then you get that aha moment, and that aha moment is critical. And when I was working with students and I read a passage to my students and I said, what does that mean? The skilled readers in the class got it. I said, act it out. The unskilled readers just sat there and went, hmm. And they miss a lot. So you're always wanting them thinking and creating meaning and that's being an active learner. Mm-hmm. Got it. P, play. When you're playing, learning's enjoyable. It's not painful. And here's my push. Dr. Mary Helen Imordano Yang has written papers, academic papers, and has done brain research on the power of emotions and learning. When children are happy, they're playing and they're learning, and emotions and learning are connected. And it's not an additional extra. The happy emotions are essential for connecting our memory. And that's what I did for Nicholas when we were in Oxford. And that's what I want to do with every student I have so that they're in my classroom and they're laughing and they're smiling because it's about connecting to memory and being relaxed when they're with you and saying, it's okay if I make a mistake. And finally, from all of those three, you have student success. Success on a daily basis that leads to long-term success and some bigger jumps in learning. I like that. Could you share a success story related to one of your students? I know you wrote some in the book. Other than Nicholas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My first student was called Christian. He was the boy who had spent four years in a phonics-only reading program. I met his mother when I first moved to Lubbock, and I knew the scenario that he'd failed for so long. So I went and visited him and I took my first lesson. My first lesson is my box lesson. There's a YouTube video of it and it's in my book. And my box lesson is, you know, what could be in this box, dealing with three words, could, should and would, and what could be in there, what should be in there and what would you like to find there. I've created active learners and you're playing. Christian got to the end of that and said, that was so funny. (laughs) And then I I had to do something again. And the next lesson, I thought, the next lesson's got to be just as good. What do I do? What do I do? And I had to think and think and think and read and read and read. And I thought, I've got to turn a story into a play for him. And he and his family, we read it one weekend. We had the props there. And that was the lesson that made him say, I can do it and I want to work with this lady. I worked with him for three years. I taught him during the school and he graduated high school and went on to get an honours degree in communication. Oh, yeah. Four years later. And I talked to him or we talked on a podcast afterwards and 
He said, before I came to Lois, I thought, I can't do this. And she doesn't know what she's got in me. She doesn't know how hard this is for me. And I won't be able to do it. But I did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he did. Once children have failed, it's a huge effort to turn them around to say, it's okay and I'm okay with you getting things wrong and it's okay to take you from where you are to the next step tomorrow. That boy worked with me every summer for three years, plus during schools, to really grow. So there's a huge cost to him. Two hours a day, five days a week we worked in summer for, I'd say, 10 of the 12 weeks. Enormous effort, but it was worth it. Yeah, that's a beautiful story. And I want to touch on something you said there about him thinking that you wouldn't be able to help him because of his learning history, literally. So this kind of ties into this series that you lead, which is a 10-week lecture series titled When Learning is Trauma. Could you tell us about that? (sighs) This one's tough. My son, Nicholas, went from the worst child I've seen in 20 years of teaching to PhD, applied mathematics, Oxford University. So there was a total transformation in his life. And he's been successful in school since the second and third grade, really the third grade. And I thought, everything's fine now. You know, Nicholas got a PhD. (laughs) And I said, Nick, tell me what happened in first grade. My son cried, his tongue just went round and round in his mouth. Mm. And it was like he was back in that first grade classroom and he couldn't, nothing could come out of his mouth. Nothing came from his mouth. And for the first time in my life, I recognised that was a traumatic experience that I had never helped him deal with. Once he was successful, I thought it's gone, it's over, but it's not. In fact, it's so traumatic that we actually have to deal with what happened in first grade. And I met online another lady who talked about mental health and trauma and dyslexia. So between her and her name is Lisa McCarty, she and I connected and we did this series looking at the experiences people have had in school and how it impacts their life and how traumatic it is. That's how it came about. So we talked to other just people who are dyslexic, who failed in school and how they've coped with it because there's higher levels of depression and anxiety and alcohol and drug abuse. And my son is one of the few who actually got out of it. And I'm just reading the book, The Body Keeps the Score, and I've just read about the impact. You actually go back to that time and you haven't moved from it. It's still a memory. And we have to move it from the memory to shift it to a different component part of the brain to have people deal with it. Mm -hmm. So is he getting some support now? Yes. Okay. Yes, he is. And I think he will need more support if he has children because it will rear its ugly head eventually. Hmm. Now for parents out there who might recognize that their children are struggling in school, what are some ways they can identify or like signs they can look for 
to see if their child is being traumatized by learning. How are they coming home from school? Are they happy or are they unhappy? How is the homework going? Are you finding it easy to do or is your child in tears? Are they saying, I'm stupid, I can't, I can't, I can't? And one of the struggles I had with Nicholas in first grade is he couldn't actually say to me, Mum, the teacher shouts at me every day. I can't do the work. The children don't have the language to explain what's going on in the classroom. And the other upsetting component to me, just switching to my story for a minute, is that no teacher honestly said to me, he shouldn't be here, we should find an alternative. You know, so so look for the, the solution, look for alternatives. See if you can get some honest answers. I think that's close on impossible. But know that learning and pain should never go together because it's a long-term disastrous combination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine if your child is not speaking up and the teacher isn't communicating with you, you're going to kind of have to be alert and look out for these things. But once you do become suspicious, let's say, what's the next step? Make a change. Make a change. Do something. Don't allow that child to go back into that disastrous, traumatic situation. There there is trauma from going to school and failing every day. Find alternatives. Seek alternatives. Have children happy before we ask them to do anything else. And I feel for parents because the answers are not simple, nor are they straightforward, and you'll have combinations of younger children or older siblings who will be involved, and it makes the solutions much more challenging. Reach out, find a community who can support you. And in this day and age, we have to get tested to say this, that, and the other. I think it's a disastrous route to go down, but you have no choice. But seek support, I think, is the biggest thing. Seek support. Got it. So... Is your lecture series made available continuously? I know you're you're in one right now, right? Yes. I find doing podcasts every single week a real challenge. You know, so we do it in a series of 10 weeks and we and we did one in the fall, we do one in the spring and one in the early summer, then we have a break for the July and August and then come back again in the fall. And I'm talking to a whole range of people, people who are dyslexics, and then people who are specialists in the field of learning and memory and language and people who have helped others overcome. What do we have to do when trauma has been inflicted? How do we get out of it? And how do we stop it? Mm -hmm. So if people are interested in joining, they can find that information on your website. On my website and on my YouTube channel, yes, and you can listen to any of them. Some are absolutely heartbreaking, Mm. heartbreaking. And then in two weeks' time, we talk to Dr. Mary Helen Imordano Yang, which I am over the moon about that she spoke to us. (laughs) (laughs) And that's fascinating, her background that led her to brain research. And, you know, backgrounds, how you've lived and what you do impact so much of your life. Yeah. So enjoy it. Talk to me, share with me, and let's, when kids are traumatised, let's not just shove it under the carpet and pretend it didn't happen. 
which is what I did. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully we're seeing a change in that universally with people being more aware of mental health issues in general, like people being more willing to seek support, like therapy isn't just for people who are chronically depressed, that maybe if people want to learn more about themselves or you know have some kind of maintenance plan of wellness check-ins, what I mean is more people are talking about it now. Yes. And I think having that awareness and removing that stigma might help parents kind of recognize when it's happening in their own home. A big deal about what we talk about on When Learning is Trauma is the big T and the little t. The big T's are obvious. You know, your kid's been diagnosed with cancer, you're in a major car accident, you know, huge death in the family, something that, home, you know, homelessness, all of those things are considered big T's. We have ignored the little T's. And the problem with the little T's is they happen on a daily basis and go unrecognised. The teacher shouting at you in class, the total humiliation in class. My son Nicholas was isolated in the lunchroom every single day for two years. No one sat with him. That social isolation is as bad as physical punishment. When children are in tears over their homework every night, nothing, no learning, no positive learning is happening. In fact, you're inflicting trauma on that child. Don't do it. It's not worth it. Look for alternatives and go and say, we spent four hours on our homework last night. That is too much for an eight or nine or 10-year-old child. I'm never doing that again. Apologise to the child and say, we're going to find a way around this. This isn't working. We're going to work with the school. They're going to know. I would be much more proactive now than I was then. I was accepting of the school. I was accepting of their diagnosis. My husband wasn't but he wasn't on the front line of facing the teachers in the school. And in fact, you know, to get Nicholas out of the hole that he was in, I had to go to school with the solution. This is the problem. This is the solution. Because when you've got a diagnosis that says low IQ, which is what we had, you wouldn't have a leg to stand on as a parent. And that's a problem. And in fact, I said to the principal, I said to him, you know, they failed. You failed to teach my child to read. And he said, well, we can't teach everyone to read. <sighs> what? That's my whole life. That's what I've spent my life doing, teaching the kids you've written off to read. Yes, we can teach everyone to read. Why is that in your vocabulary as a principal? Am I getting annoyed? <laughs> <laughs> Parents don't accept excuses. And unfortunately, you are the ones who have to come up with a solution because the school will often say, well, we've done this, we've done this, and we've ticked every box. My latest student was 16 years old. He had spent 10 years in school. He could not read a sentence accurately. He spent four years in a school for dyslexics. The parents have spent $100,000 for their child to come out non-reading. That's my next book. And schools then defend what they have done. He reached every IEP goal that was written for him, IEP, Individual Education Plan, and still non-reading. 
it's not acceptable. And despite the parents pushing, she still ended up with nothing. Eventually she came to me, like last year, and the first thing I do is ask them to give me a sentence with the word T-O. Well, he said, I've got two lizards the same. Give me a sentence with the word F-O-R, and to do that I asked the mother to write F-O-R on a piece of paper for him because it was via Zoom, and he said, I have four grey shark's teeth. Something is fundamentally wrong in that child's understanding of the written language. He can't do it when you've got that understanding. So I check all of these boxes. What has the kid got? Well, that's why he can't read that. And now then, you know, over three or four months, he's reading and writing effectively. Mm-hmm. The failure lies in the teaching. The only person I haven't really effectively been able to teach are people with significant brain damage or children who cannot I cannot engage with for whatever reason, whether their past history has stopped them from reading. One little girl taught me on Zoom. She's sitting trying to talk to me on Zoom with a blanket over her face. It's very difficult, you know, and it, and you've got to build up their trust and the time with them and all sorts of things before you even think about learning to read and write. Yeah. Now, Lois, changing topics a bit, well, kind of going back to that story you told of Christian and the box, you know, it got me thinking about your creativity and how you mentioned earlier that's one of your strengths related to dyslexia. First, as a reading specialist, did you have to go through any special training? Yes. I was a physical education teacher in Australia and I was then allowed to switch from physical education to reading. So I did my graduate diploma in reading in Australia. When we moved to Texas, I had to do more studies. So I studied there. And then when we came to upstate New York, where we live now, I did my master's degree in literacy. So they are my specialties. But there's an addition to this. Every reader has a background knowledge. You don't ever come to any text with nothing. You know, you come with some knowledge or no knowledge or whatever. But my background of teaching Nicholas and me allows me to look at anything I read through both eyes, both sets of eyes. How does this work? How does it apply to me? And I think that was huge in itself. So, yes, I did do the training. Mm-hmm. And I've taught in Australia, I've taught in Texas, and I, I can't teach, and I've tutored in upstate New York, which is what I'm doing now, tutoring. Got it. Yeah. And how do you come up with these clever activities? It's understanding how the dyslexic and the autistic brain works. First is abstract words cause problems and words with multiple meaning cause problems. So words with multiple meaning you teach. The word two has got two meanings and not only say it but write it because the problem is in the writing. Show them how it works and put it into a little ditty or a little poem that they can then recall. Ah, this is easy then, isn't it? Abstract words are a challenge because we expect children to just connect and, and just learn them. So I thought, how can I do this? And my first one really worked out with under and I had little sticky notes or labels for Nicholas and I put everything in his bedroom. It's under your pillow, it's under your bed, it's under the bed leg, it's under the chair leg. And so that was the first activity. 
because I thought now he'll remember. If it's an experience, you re- there's a higher chance of memory. And when he, the next day I had all these cards together, so put them in the right place and he put under the chair leg under the chair and under the chair was under the chair leg. And I said, oh, Nicholas, look what we've done here. See, it's a chair leg. And then you realise the word leg and chair, uh, the chair can be an adjective or a noun. And even that shift from noun to adjective can throw children who struggle with reading because mm-hmm. they're seeing a chair. And what's that leg? Well, you've got to recognise that that leg is part of the chair. Okay, so that really was a shift in my thinking. And then would, could and should came up and I thought, I know he's going to have a problem with this. What do I do? Oh, would, could and should the box. And I kept thinking and thinking, what else could I do? A bottle of wine would be great. Can't send a bottle of wine to school with a kid. That would be disastrous. <laughs> a bottle of apple juice. Ah, bottle of apple juice. What could be it? Take the label off. Oh, that's a pretty colour now, isn't it? And then I just wrote a letter from the zoo and I wrote, uh, dear Mrs. I wrote it to myself, dear Mrs. Letchford, please find the enclosed sample you requested. The elephants were most uncooperative in providing <laughs> the assigned sample. It took three of our most experienced handlers and lots of water to pee into the bottle provided. And it went on and on and on. And, and so, again, it's an experience. And you've got the children thinking what could be in this bottle. And then you've got a letter from the zoo. Mm-hmm. Oh, hilarious, <laughs> funny. Humour adds to your memory surprising, interesting or funny, you remember it with no effort at all. And that's how I did it. How can I make this funny as opposed to here's a word, just learn it. Well, it could be Timbuktu, you know. Yeah. Give the word a context. Put a nest in it. Put the word in a nest. Build the context. Build the experience. Build the fun, the game. And then you've got the emotion with it. You're not stressing over learning the word. And when they can't remember it, you say to them, what did you do yesterday? What we did we look at? Oh, I had a bottle of elephant pee. <laughs> and we said, what could, shouldn't, would be in it. Uh-huh. Got it. Yeah, that's really interesting. Now, I'm curious, do you see any differences across cultures with the students you teach? And do you have to adapt your method in a certain way, depending on the culture that you're working with? In general, I don't see any difference across cultures. Okay. When a child has failed, they're all in pain. They blame themselves, just like I did, and everyone else blames them too. So that's generalised across cultures. The thing I have to change is my accent and how I say words. And the difference is what sounds trip children up in different places, depending on their oral language. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest difference. You know, in in Texas, it's pin and pen are actually the same words. In Australia, it's the A and the U that are similar. Mm -hmm. Cup and cap are similar, but pin and pen. And when you say words that end in ah, like saw, you add a little kind of R sound to it. Yes. I change my accent to the child that I'm teaching, so I'm using their language so they understand me and we can then discuss how I say it, how they say it and what's the difference. But when we write it, 
it's all the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, do you collaborate with any speech therapists? Is that in your work also? It should be mm-hmm. because my work overlaps with the speech therapy, highly overlaps with speech. I haven't done it here. I did it when I was teaching in Tasmania. Huge overlap between speech therapy and children who are struggling and literacy. Yeah. Well, that 16-year-old boy, I mean, for any of the kids that you work with who now can read and write, have this whole world open to them. And this may be an obvious question, but could you talk a little bit about why it's so important for a person living right now in this society, this age, to be able to read and write? Well, we think technology can do a lot for us in that you can listen to things. But if you can't do it by yourself, every day you go to school, failing is the first thing. Every day you have failed. That is disastrous in itself and it impacts your motivation. It impacts what you think of yourself and what you're capable of. That's the first reason why it's so important. And the second is your world just shrinks. It shrinks to, you know, a person in the Middle Ages and who you can talk to. And that lack of growth is also disastrous. But a lot, you know, comes back to what, how you see yourself as someone who can't do the fundamental things that everyone else can do. And you grow up with, I'm flawed, I'm not good enough. Mm. And it takes a huge effort to get outside of that box. And we haven't even talked about, you know, what happens to the brain. And then I think of, you know, my son, Nicholas. Nicholas at six and seven looked dumb and sounded the same. 20-something years later, that child has a PhD in applied mathematics. That's the quality of brain that we have left behind. You know, you're not only learning to read and write, but you're missing out on everything else that goes along. We're missing out on the growth of that brain and, and the potential that that brain has. And then they end up in prison and prison to pipeline and behavior problems and everything else under the sun. And teachers have to be a little bit more aware of what else do I have to do to teach this child to read? I'm getting off track there. But to me, that's why it's so important that we teach them to read. You know, when you send children to school, it's like sending them to war every day. It's disastrous. And then catching up is another component. Now, the amount of work they have to do to catch up and to become normal and come back into mainstream is huge. My story shows the amount of effort that Nicholas had to go through. And what we didn't know is that Nicholas is a highly disciplined, highly motivated child when he, you know, when he was a kid. He still is. What do you want people to take away from reading your memoir? First, that we can and we must teach children to read. That's the first. When you see a six-year-old child who's struggling in school, the words out of our mouth should be, that's a future rocket scientist. One, so the child can hear it. Secondly, so that we make an effort to change the teaching so that child can learn to read. And when you see poor results, think and work beyond and around them and know the, the answers lie in how we teach and not 
in the IQ of that child. And then I suppose the final thing is my story and Nicholas's story is a blueprint for going from the bottom to the top. All that has to happen to have a child succeed is in Nicholas's story. There are solutions, there are answers for children who are struggling, but it's not going to be within the norm. And they're not within normal. Don't expect them to learn like they're normal. (laughs) Exactly. All right, Lois. Well, I'd like to close with one last question. What advice would you give to children, to students who are kind of struggling right now, maybe struggling to meet whatever goals are set for them? One of the challenges with that question is that the children don't have the language to say, I'm doing the best I can. I don't understand what you are saying to me. When you give me this piece of paper, I look at it and my mind goes, bang, I don't understand it. So it goes back to the parents to say, let's give the children the language to say, this doesn't make sense to me. So that then the teacher hopefully will start listening to the child. So the children have to have the language. I don't understand. And then for the parents again to give give them role models, show them my book trailer, show them that they're not alone. You're not alone in this world, that there are other people who've been through this journey and have been successful. What are we going to do to help you? Again, although we want the children to to do these things, I think it's very hard for them when they, again, when they don't have the language to say, I can't, I'm working as hard as I can. And then we have to get teachers to listen to that and take it on board and be more inclusive in the classroom because there are activities that are more inclusive and there are some that are exclusive. So it's again back to the adults. How are we going to help this tiny little seed grow and flourish? Yeah. I like that. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Well, Lois, thank you so much for sharing your story with us and your tips and your expertise. I think this is going to be a really important episode for our professionals and our parents out there. Rachel, thank you for having me. Thank you for letting me talk from my heart. You know, I I just keep thinking of what could have happened. What if, what if for my Nicholas? He was extremely privileged to be in the position he was, when he was, and it transformed his life. So we have to take that and we can't ask children to move schools and have our children have those experiences in the school they are at, in the home that they are at and let them thrive and flourish. Yes. And could you just say your website so people know where to learn more about you? I'm at www.loisletchford.com. My YouTube channel, I think, is loisletchford.com. And I'm on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn. We'll put those links in our show notes so people can follow you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. 
Lois's message is a good reminder for educators and other professionals to re-examine their methods when a child is not grasping a particular concept. Enjoying the classroom and feeling confident can open the doors to a whole new world of learning. Like Lois, are you a professional seeking to hear directly from autistic voices and improve your practice? Are you a family member hoping to support and empower your loved one? Are you a self-advocate willing to share your story and educate others? Whatever your role related to autism is, you can join our online Global Autism Community to connect and collaborate with people all over the world. Sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.